You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured number 80. So today we're going to talk about new frontiers in the world of digital organizing and what it means for the labor movement. Will technology be used for good or for evil? First, some news. Well, it was only a matter of time before the pendulum swung back on the free trade deal at the core of the partisan gridlock in Washington. We have been discussing on and off now uh, the ups and downs of the uh, fast track legislation that would accelerate the passage of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And in our last podcast, we reported on some sort of good news. Uh, The measure in the Senate was actually upended at the last minute, but just as quickly as it was defeated, it has been resurrected yet again through some partisan wrangling and some additional pressure from the White House. They appear to have wrangled off enough uh, Democratic votes to end cloture, which now means that it, it is set to pass uh, with a simple majority. Um, Without getting into the details, basically uh, this is on track to handing the White House a blank check to negotiate one of the most massive free trade deals since NAFTA. Um, And now it will be essentially in the hands of a bunch of trade ministers in a shadowy back room somewhere and a secret cabal of, uh, you know, uh, corporate lobbyists. So uh, the details are messy, but um, basically the House uh, thwarted the, uh, the, the Senate measure and And as George Zornick at The Nation points out, um, this is an extraordinary sign of congressional cooperation in the worst possible way because the 15-vote threshold is, uh, believe it or not, quite a rarity in Washington. It means both, quote, a reduced burden that hasn't been granted to minimum wage hikes, equal pay legislation, gun control, campaign finance reform, or any other non-budgetary legislation of the Obama era. Oh, well, but this free trade deal will get just that privilege. Um, Essentially, Congress will be unable to amend any trade deal agreed to by the president. They will only get an up or down vote. To recap, um, this will put us on the path to passing the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which will uh, encompass a dozen Pacific Rim countries into a massive trade deal that will dramatically um, give corporations outsized power to rewrite rules on things like patents, uh, intellectual property, and the ability of corporations to bring lawsuits against sovereign governments, all that kind of good stuff. We'll continue covering it, but for now, it looks like what looked like a victory for labor turned out to be another extraordinary debacle in on Capitol Hill. Shockingly, Congress can get it together only to screw us. Um, so, on a later, if smaller note, um, this past weekend, migrant farm workers in Vermont and their allies around the country held a series of actions calling on Ben and Jerry's, the famously progressive ice cream company, to treat its supply chain workers with dignity. Though the company has supported left-leaning causes from Occupy Wall Street to Senator Bernie Sanders' presidential bid, Vermont dairy workers who provide the milk that makes Ben and Jerry's ice cream are often underpaid and face wage theft and unsanitary conditions. I know all of you out there are so surprised. One survey found that of the 1,200 to 1,500 farm workers in the state of Vermont, 20% of them have had their paychecks illegally withheld, and 40% are paid less than minimum wage. Of course, longtime belabored listeners know that farm workers were left out of the National Labor Relations Act when it was passed way back when, and even with legal protections, migrant workers often face abuses. So taking a page from the Coalition of Immokalee Workers' Fair Food Program, Migrant Justice is calling on Ben & Jerry's to sign on to its Milk with Dignity program. And just before last Saturday's action, Ben & Jerry's actually agreed to come to the table and negotiate an agreement with the workers. So the actions wound up being a little bit more celebratory and less uh, pressure, although of course you always need to make sure that employers follow through on their promises. But we do have some audio from the event, thanks to friend of belabored Jonathan Levitt. It's also important to recognize that right now there are 16 different cities across the country taking action in solidarity with Vermont So we've taken, as we've said, an important step forward by just yesterday. 
coming to an agreement to sit down at the table and negotiate with Ben and Jerry's their participation in our Milk with Dignity program. But we still have a little bit further to go to get to the finish line, so we need to keep up all this great work and pressure and build our movement. Gracias. And those were dairy workers in Vermont. And you can also read Jonathan's piece about the campaign at Truthout. We will have a link at the Descent website. And in part of what is becoming a, a kind of fun little trend, there is yet another anti-union video leaked this week. This one from Verizon, a company that, well, they, they have unions in some places and they don't in others. And it's it, Verizon's a mess. Um... So Verizon's anti-union video tells workers to, quote, do your research. Um, the thing that I, I mean, there are many things that are fascinating about these videos. This one is just like a 30 second clip and it is, um, well, we'll let you hear it for yourselves. When you have an environment that becomes unionized that wasn't, you put a wall up between the company and the employee. You feel like you're not empowered to make any decisions. You're not empowered to have your own opinion. You have to have someone there with you to represent you, almost like if you were a child. For the employees that were maybe thinking about going towards a union, you know, my advice to them would be to do your research. And so... What I find fascinating about these videos, first of all, they're always people of color because statistically people of color are actually much more interested and likely to join a union. Um, they're always the same garbage. It is always the same, like, well, I just felt disempowered when there was a union and I can speak for myself, so I don't need a union. And, you know, it's it's both surprising how well this can work right but also it's you know as we see more and more of these leaked to the web you really get a sense for sort of how standardized the anti-union playbook has become and when it becomes very standardized it's easier to defeat and it's also easier for people who have seen this sort of passed around the internet to be prepared for it when they go into their captive audience meetings where they're forced to watch insipid videos like this for, you know, much longer insipid videos yeah. than this. It's easier to mock. That, yeah, it's easier to mock. It's easier to stand up and question it. And so um, more leaked anti-union videos, please. More audio from captive audience meetings, please. You can always email those things directly to us at belaboredatdissentmagazine.org. Yes, truth in advertising. Um, and, and, and by the way, as, as Sarah informed me, those are all, uh, uh, I, I don't believe those are actual uh, Verizon employees in the video. No, no, uh, fake union central casting, I believe. So. Casting. Yes, but anyway, uh, speaking of uh, marketing, um, you may have heard of the decision that came down from the California uh, Labor Board recently uh, certifying that Uber is uh, an employer um, rather than just in an independent contractor relationship with uh, one particular driver. So in this particular case, uh, she sought compensation from Uber um, over uh, you know certain fees that she felt were due to her because of problems that Uber um, had caused her while she was on the road. Um, so she brought the case, and while it was just one case and one of many pending decisions regarding Uber's legal status, it does perhaps help set a precedent um, in determining what the relationship is between Uber and its workers. Uber likes to commonly sell this as a standard uh, independent contractor thing. They say that they are just a vessel for this wonderful technology, and it's completely open, and the drivers are free to do as they please with it. But in fact, as we well know, they actually exert quite a bit of control over the working conditions and the wages of their drivers. So while that's being hashed out, I talked to um, Sarah Lieberstein. She is a senior staff attorney at the National Employment Law Project, and she gave me her insights as to what the ruling means and how it might affect future cases affecting m many more drivers in the future. Given the fact that it's non-binding and, and uh, it really only is about this one case, uh, do you have a sense of, of uh, what this means for the ongoing legal battle to have Uber workers recognized as employees? You're right that this decision is non-binding. It just applies to the one worker. So, like, from a technical legal standpoint, it's it's not necessarily going to have a direct effect on future cases. 
But, I, you know, I think it does a few things. Number one is obviously it sends a message pretty broadly to the public and to the company that there may be a problem or serious problem with Uber's business model. Um, it could embolden more workers to come forward and press their claims. And I think it's also helping us all develop um, a collective sense of what Uber's model really is. And it shows some facts that really cut very deeply against Uber's argument that is just a technology company and that the drivers who uh, use its platform are entrepreneurs. You know, the the few details that we have stemming from this case, but, you know, they are important and they build upon um, other facts that we know from, you know, the pending litigation in California and from newspaper articles, and they're painting a pretty clear picture of of the true situation for Uber drivers and, um, you know, showing us that those drivers really are just not in business for themselves. They are providing services that are a very integral part, are, are really the business of Uber, um, and look very, very much like employees. Yeah, I'm sure they could deploy their um, app-making skills to something as <laughs> right. basic as a payroll. Um if Uber's argument is that, like, well, we're just this um, neutral technological vessel for this service and we play no role in, you know, managing their labor conditions or controlling their revenue streams or whatever, if, if their whole argument is that they're just a software company, then why, other than to make huge profits, you know, why would they be even seeking this independent contracting arrangement? If they were truly solely in the business of providing a technology, you'd assume that it would be basically a one-off transaction where they would either sell or or rent or offer this technology to workers, and then workers, drivers, could use it however they saw fit. But, you know, I think what's become very clear in the litigation and all the press we've seen about Uber is that Uber is making a ton of money. They're deriving their profits you know, by maintaining this ongoing relationship through a fleet of drivers, you know, over over whom they have, you know, m- many controls. They're they're basically, you know, essentially determining how much the drivers are making because you know they're setting the fares and determining what share of that drivers get. They're the ones who are discouraging customers from giving tips or drivers from accepting them, it, it, as is pretty clear in this decision by the labor commissioner. There may even be cases where the customer cancels and the Uber driver doesn't get any fee. So if they, if Uber were really just a technology company, they wouldn't care. They would just sell that technology, and then it would be up to the driver to decide whether or not to take a tip or to charge a cancellation fee and how much to charge per fare. Um, you know, and, and that's not to mention all of the other ways that Uber is you know, deciding who can work for them, whether or not they can um, – you know, stay working with the company or Uber decides to let them go. You know, I I would assume that if they were just a technology company, they might be charging the drivers a fee just for that technology, but instead they are continuing to siphon profits off of the workers on an ongoing basis. Um, And and of, of that, I mean, the way that it's working technically is that the customer is, is paying the fee directly to Uber through the app, and then Uber remits the fee to the driver, and so therefore Uber has to is deciding how to treat that payment, and they're treating it as a fee to an independent contractor. What aspects of this case are maybe unique to what we call the sharing economy? And I guess you know, does this all <laughs> open up like a whole new legal realm that is like distinct? would you say from say the FedEx driver um, controversy or the UPS drivers or whatever and, and, uh, and, and, you know, goes beyond, you know, any precedent that's been set so far in um, this whole worker misclassification um, arena? No, I, I don't think that it's altogether distinct. The facts look, I mean, they, they, are you know not identical obviously to the facts that we see in um, the FedEx cases and other driver cases, but um, I would really see this work arrangement as existing along a spectrum. 
that includes other types of what we might call more traditional forms of independent contractor misclassification. I think, you know, Uber and others like it are interesting because they've been able to use these technologies in ways that I think can possibly, to to maybe someone who's not looking behind the labels, further obscure the nature of the relationship between the worker and the company. So, for example, um, you know, a, a decision maker who maybe wasn't so attuned to the way that this relationship was working in practice, you know, you could see them, you know, perhaps buying into Uber's claim that it, you know, just was in the business of providing a technology. You know, luckily the the judge in this um, district course case really, you know, ripped that argument to shreds, I think, in a very nice way um, and, and made pretty clear that, yes, Uber has this technology, but that's, you know, just the way that it's getting customers or, or facilitating its business that's you know has not revolutionized the relationship between the driver and the company and that was sarah laberstein of the national employment law project talking about workers in the new digital economy And speaking of workers in the new digital economy, our guest today is the co-author of a new report on virtual labor organizing from the Century Foundation. Mark Zuckerman is president of the Century Foundation and before that served as the staff director of the U.S. House Education and Workforce Committee, once upon a time called the Education and Labor Committee, but the Republican Congress changed that. Little known fact. Anyway, he worked under Congressman George Miller and was President Obama's deputy domestic policy advisor in the White House from 2011 to 2013. So welcome, Mark, who's going to tell us about his report on virtual labor organizing. Why is now 2015 the right time to start talking about digital organizing? So we looked at um, all of the technologies that are developing uh, for consumers and technologies that are affecting workers. And when you look at something like Uber, which is very controversial and has had an impact on workers, but you also look at what was attractive about it. It's you know a one-click operation to get the car to come uh, to you. And we looked at other technologies that you know have been around, uh, like Amazon, where you can in a couple clicks get whatever literature, film, movies, uh, TV shows that you want. And it seems like that's where the digital world is going to uh, a more streamlined process. Uh, to get your products or to take some process and simplify it. And when we look at the business formation in the country, it's very entrepreneurial. Uh, it's very flexible. Businesses pop up all over the country, and it's a very creative uh, process for business creation. And then we looked at the labor uh, creation and said, we're still using the same model. The country is still using the same model that it did in the 30s, where you have organizers for labor unions uh, sending people in, talking to the workers, and trying to um, give them the choice and imbue them with the option of forming a labor union. Uh, but that old model doesn't really fit in with the way things are done today. And so we started thinking, what is it that technology would offer to workers who want the option of forming a union. And first we looked at why is this important. It's important because if you think about the value of joining a labor union, it is the single largest unclaimed legal right in America. To some workers it's worth over a million and a half dollars during their lifetime. And we said that's an important source of wealth that many Americans are leaving on the table because they don't understand uh, the process, and it's not easy to be part of a labor union. And we said, we think this technology could make it easier, and if it was easier to do, then more Americans would say, I want that unclaimed wealth that being part of a labor union uh, would give me. We also looked at some recent legal developments. The National Labor Relations Board has made a, a couple of decisions in the last year that have made this project easier. One, it used to be that you couldn't send emails around in the office to promote the idea of joining a labor union or even debate joining a labor union, and yet the employer had full access to use the emails in, in any way 
that they uh, legally could. And so what the board said in a decision, Purple Communications, is that going forward, employees on their own time can use the employer's email if, uh, if it's made available for purposes of discussing and creating a union. At the same time, or shortly after that, the board uh, did a regulation that streamlined many of the processes that now hold up the union formation process. And uh, today, if 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 uh, employer is not obstructing uh, the the regular legal process for forming a union, you could you could have uh, a union election called in four to six weeks under the new regime for it. So when you put together the ability to use email and the streamline process for getting to a union election, on top of using new technology to be able to communicate with your fellow workers, but more than that, go through a step-by-step process, just like you would on LegalZoom uh, when you're you know, wanting a, a will or something like that, or TurboTax when you have a lot of complicated choices to make about deductions and want it explained to you. There needs to be, we're suggesting, a step-by-step process where you can, with some of your colleagues, say, we're interested in considering a union. What are the steps? And who can take me through those steps uh, without a union coming in from Chicago or New York or, or Miami or whatever? You can start it yourself, get it going, and if you need help along the way, then you can uh, get more resources through this online just to, um, to clarify, does that include, you said email, does that involve like any kind of social media and other types of electronic communications as well? The, the decision was focused, the case was about email, mm-hmm. but, you know, we'll see how the, the board evolves that. There, the, the, the logic behind the board's decision was this kind of technology is now universally av- available in the workplace where it wasn't many years ago. And so if the employers are making use of technology, the employees. So I think the logical extension of that is if employers are using this some kind of technology that helps communicate, that the employees will be able to use it. The plan that, that you guys lay out in this report is an app of some kind that would speed basically the process of filing for an NLRB election. Um but so what I'm interested in is I, I did this story earlier this year on the workers at Cablevision here in New York who won their election and then had a three-year fight for, to get to a first contract where the employer just wouldn't come to the table and there were all of these suits and fights. And so I'm wondering, you know, in a situation like that, is there a way to use technology, have, you know, sort of a next level part of a platform like this that would also help get to a first contract since that's also where so many of these fights die? Well, uh, I think there's a good example uh, that you're pointing out with Cablevision because uh, getting to that first contract after you have a union is a critical thing and it's one of the you know, uh, most important parts after you have an election to be able to get that first contract and deliver. And I would say a couple things uh, about that. Uh, First of all, this tool could help with that because part of having a first contract is coming together as employees and identifying what are the priorities, you know, what's common in the industry, what's standard in the industry for wages and for benefits, and having the power of that information in real time can uh, can really make a difference in being able to communicate that uh, with others. But really what we're saying here is we're going to change the culture. The, the old rules where employers just obstructed, 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 and, and said that we're under threat from some outside union, outside party coming to invade the country can be turned around if it's truly an indigenous effort by the, by the employees who work at that uh, establishment saying, hey, Nobody's manipulating us. No one's trying to convince us of anything. We've decided on our own that we want uh, more say in the workplace. We want to have more clout in the workplace uh, to advocate for the issues that we really care about, fair scheduling, uh, which is a big issue, family and medical leave, benefits, that kind of thing. And the idea is if these unions pop up all around the country and enough people are doing it and there's enough momentum, 
they'll change the culture where employers will just sort of say, oh, yeah, this is just part of being an employer, where employees get together, they advocate for themselves, we work out some agreement together. And I think in the end, if enough uh, employees are willing to take this first step and say we're interested in creating a union and we're interested in negotiating in good faith about the terms and, and benefits and conditions, we'll get past this issue of first contract. But it is important to remember that the employers are required to negotiate in good faith. And there may be instances where you have to hold the employers accountable for failing to do that. But volume is important here. If, if it happens in enough workplaces where it's just sort of the status quo is lo- locally grown unions supported by national unions where help is necessary, uh, I think this first contract issue can be uh, tackled. And I suppose you could probably write in an easy way to file an NLRB complaint into an app, too. Absolutely. There should be an app for that. Actually, I feel like the NLRB website should probably have a mechanism yeah. for that. I mean, anyway, really, right? if that anyone be... from the NLRB is listening, this, um, well, this look, is your the NLRB, they have a lot of information, but action, you know, what we're finding with this new technology is you want to use the technology to act, not right. just to inform. Right. Both are important. Right. Well, Currently, I mean, there's no, I, I feel like there should be an electronic balloting process as well. Is that in the cards, or do they still, I guess it's still done so by the, hand. So the cards that you sign, and you mm-hmm. need 30% of the bargaining unit uh, signed so you can submit your petition for an election. And my understanding is these are signatures, actual signatures. But again, the board, I think, will respond to the common technologies. It's getting very common now that you sign legal documents electronically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that seems to, you know, that would seem to be the, the proper evolution. I'm not an expert on the, you know, the technical requirements of, of signing cards, but it seems to me that for this to work, it would be helpful to be able to uh, have valid electronic signatures to verify sure. uh, people who are signing. And we already have, I mean, in, in courts, they have electronic filing for all sorts of, of things course. now, too. Since you put out the report, have there been any takers in terms of developers who are willing to, uh, you know... I'll tell you, we're getting a, a large number of emails from people saying, how can I help? Uh, people who have small firms saying, you know, I'm willing to lend my expertise. Um advocates from around the country. There is a lot of interest uh, in this, and one of the things that uh, the Century Foundation is considering doing is, is uh, conducting a forum. If interested parties from developers to uh, labor union advocates to average uh, hardworking Americans who want to participate in this and talk about what's the best strategy uh, to bring to bring this forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, when I read the report, I was thinking this would also be, you know, a very good experiment in testing the boundaries of open source and, and like creating an, a software platform that can be used and replicated in, in a public. Uh, this has to be readily accessible. And one of the things that, you know, we looked at in the report is the millennials. Right. Uh, in, in particular, their views of labor unions, right. which are they are more supportive of labor unions in terms of categories of ages than uh, any other age group. They're receptive to collective action in the workplace to try to make the workplace better. When you combine that with the fact that millennial, millennials are driving the digital age now, they're not only consumers of digital products, but uh, they are really helping uh, move technology forward. Th- this is uh, their generation in terms of technology. And so the combination of their receptiveness to a new kind of labor union that serves their their needs in the workplace, that's flexible, that's uh, organic, that's effective, and their comfortableness with technology make makes this, we think, a really powerful idea. Uh- in your discussions when developing this idea, um, have you thought about what kind of level of digital literacy is required or, um, like you were referring to the generational thing, certainly there are many, you know, older incumbent unions, just older workers in general, or people who just, um, you know, may not be as uh, familiar with various forms of mobile technology or social media um, as, as others. Um, so how would this accommodate those needs? See, I, I think that this thing can't work unless it's really streamlined and really easy to use. And it, it shouldn't be complicated. 
and it was never envisioned that the National Labor Relations Act that gave employees a choice to to come together to negotiate, you know, on the terms and conditions. It was never meant to be complicated. It was actually meant to be the opposite. Very simple, that they get together, they discuss, and they vote. And this really should be very simple. It should be, uh, it's part of our democratic process. Debate is important. It's very important for their to be that discussion among the employees about what's best for their future and whether they want to use this tool as a way forward. But the technology has to be simple. And when you look at some of the most, whether you agree or disagree about the effects on workers of these different technologies, you have to admit the ones that are most successful are taking either simple things and making them even more simple or even complicated things like TurboTax, um, or even setting up complicated trips, you know, in Expedia or whatever. Yeah, I was just thinking of the the Delta app on my phone is probably the closest thing. Exactly, and making and making it simple. And so this won't work. And you know, we're most interested in the challenge of making this very simple for people to use, uh, and 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 they don't have to be a sophisticated computer user. They just have to be interested in. in, in in the wealth that joining a union uh, could bring. And we, we documented this in the report, what the uh, value of joining a labor union is over your career and what it could mean to your family in terms of uh, getting wealth. All the wage growth um, is going to those at the very, very top. And we can wait around a long time for this lo- this minimum wage law or that wage law or that uh, family medical leave or that scheduling law to pass, or the employees can take it, take this issue on right at work in a way that fits them and fits their needs and, and do it uh, through this new tool. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know you uh, noted in the report that uh, it's, you know, against the NLRA rules to have any kind of workplace surveillance or any kind of illegal interference um, with the union drive. I was wondering how would you... Um, sort of safeguard this technology from, uh, you know, beyond we can trust the bosses to follow the law, but I mean, the digital world has opened up all sorts of avenues for people to hack, to spy, um, corporate espionage is widespread, you know, how would we be sure that there is... has a whole spy division. Yes. So how would we be sure that there's an adequate firewall when, of course, it was obviously in the employer's interest to use this as a, you know, a trove of potentially very valuable data on who's organizing... I, I agree that employees um, have to have the confidence that the things that they're discussing and the things that they're saying are going to be private. Just like when a business discusses their future business plans, you know, they're entitled to privacy and not have their, you know, particular uh, discussions about profitability or what have you. They can have their discussions. So it's important in building this technology that employees feel like there's a secure way for them to communicate and that there are very serious consequences uh, if the employer violates that and significant protections, which if the, if the National Labor Relations Act is properly enforced, there are those protections against abuse. But the fear should not uh, keep people from the additional wealth that can be brought by doing this. There's a lot of roadblocks that people have put up over the years, and blood has been spilled in this country. Um, for many decades, uh, especially in the early years of the act, people f- uh, living and dying for their workplace rights and safety. Fear never stopped them, and fear shouldn't stop uh, people in the future. They, they, they ought to have the right to do this and uh, do it without uh, other, the employers or others uh, violating their rights. Um. So it strikes me, I've covered a lot of the work that like the Our Walmart campaign has done with using social media to, to get workers organized, and it really has struck me the way that the, the campaigns that have used social media technology, the internet in general, best are ones that are not actually aimed at getting to an NLRB election, um, and that something like this could be most helpful also to workers like the Uber drivers who don't have... A traditional workplace and but also many of whom are not you know legally eligible to join a union through the NLRB process and so I'm wondering if you guys thought at all about how 
this kind of technology could also help workers who aren't aiming for an NLRB election but still want to get together to take some sort of collective action in the workplace. And, and I think that, you know, the we're seeing the beginnings of that, of platforms that are, you know, focused on better communications so there's more unity of purpose and understanding in real time about what people are experiencing in the workplace and what their, uh, what their needs are. So I, this platform, this idea for this platform is all about choice. It may be that people want to use this platform for better communications, to share information, to um, develop strategies that can work short of organizing. Uh, that's fine. It's always meant to be a choice and, and nothing more than a choice. And it may be that at first they just want to use it for that, and maybe it evolves into uh, an organizing action in the end. Whatever the case may be, you want to take the workers where they are, where their comfort level are, and and, and give them tools to be more successful there, than they are right now. Because uh, you could you could say that in the in the mix of power between employers and companies versus employees, uh, in in that power struggle for resources and pay and flexibility, the employers, the companies are winning uh, in many cases. And uh, this is supposed to level the playing field. Yeah. How would you envision people finding out about this thing, right? I mean, if we're talking about something that would be sort of used by multiple international unions to make organizing more accessible, um, of course, it only works if people know that it exists. Right. So there's there's two parts to this. One is when you start when you look at closely at what the strategy has been for the labor unions around the country, it's been the same general strategy, uh, which is what I call retail organizing. Right. That unions at the national and local level will send people into the workplaces. They'll talk to their employees, right. and that's been the model. What this new platform allows them to do is become wholesalers, not just retailers. They can do retailing, but wholesaling, where these indigenous efforts to organize get started, petitions get filed, elections are going on, and at some point in the process, they affiliate with the national and local union. And if you think of it that way, they could use some of the One model of, of success could be that the national labor unions and regional uh, labor presence invest dollars in promoting uh, this tool, this app or technology, and uh, not to go in and organize, but to let people know that they have this self-empowering tool to do it themselves. So whether it's commercial advertising or you know social media, etc., they would be uh, allocating significant resources to letting people know. And then of course there's social media, free media and uh, letting the word spread. And when you have, if you had 100 um, workplaces that organized with this new tool and word gets out that there's this powerful new tool or tools that people are using successfully, then that word is going to get around. So I, success is, is never hard to promote, uh, but you do have to invest in some initial yeah. promotion of the people know about it. And you never know what will go viral. I've certainly seen less useful things go viral on the internet. So, who knows? Most, um, most yes. Um, um, most, I, right. And I guess um, you know, going back to this issue of the digital divide. I mean, there are certainly sectors in which workers just you know they may not even have a mobile phone. Like there are certainly like the work the workplaces that could arguably benefit the most from access to digital technology. Um, the reason they don't is precisely because they're, you know, disempowered and impoverished. And um, I think, you know, probably farm workers might, is an example that comes to mind. They're still organizing using, like, radios in the field, right? So um, how, how would this kind of um, – I mean, I guess that there would be a hurdle. There would be an initial sort of barrier to access there. So I guess do you – is this a technology that – can only really seize a workplace once that initial barrier has been broken, or do you feel like unions need to can do a more active job in terms of just getting the technology in people's hands? I, I think this is this is not uh, meant to be the only way in which workplaces will get organized. Some, you know, may, may not be properly suited for this kind of technology yet, and so uh, it would allow the labor community to focus on 
uh, why these are more indigenous, um, self-empowering efforts. They could focus their limited resources on those that are don't fit in that category and need a, a more traditional approach. But let me just say, you look at the numbers. It's amazingly low, the number of petitions for elections that are filed. It's something like uh, 2,000, and only hundreds of those will actually result uh, in the union winning, and only a subset of those will get first contracts. Uh, this is not a growth strategy. There's got to be a major change in way unions are formed or they're not going to succeed in the long run. And so this is what that's aimed to do, which is uh, to change the equation that way. Yeah. And since we are talking about a uh, ways of thinking about community that go beyond just where, where you happen to be physically, um, do you see this scaling kind of on a global uh, level? Um, I hate to use jargon. Will this scale? Um, <laughs> um, the, uh, you know, in terms of just seeing how broad, um, you know, union can communicate its message. I actually don't know the intricacies of NLRB law per se in this in terms of just organizing outside of the United States. But I do know, for instance, um, you know, workers through Mechanical Turk have been organizing on sort of a global basis. And, and so they've started to at least conceive of themselves as a class of worker that goes beyond national boundaries. Um, can this be a part of that? And where do you see maybe forms of organizing like this moving us toward that vision of one big union? Well, look, you know, you know, we take pride in our country that we've been technology leaders, we're thought leaders. Um, you know, we, we've made a lot of history in, in helping people and, and uh, people are proud of the United States and look to the United States uh, for leadership. And this is an area that we've not done lately so good at. We're not a model of the way that our, our you know, workers are organized and the difficulty and challenges that they have is kind of embarrassing. And uh, it's not good for our economy. It's not fair to workers. And by creating a new model and showing that we can use our technology smarts with our you know, storied history of, of a very... Uh, proud uh, labor movement and do it in a way that businesses in the end will see that this is a value added, that's going to catch on and that's going to give people a lot of confidence that uh, this technology has been battle tested in a very uh, challenging place, which is the United States right now for labor. If you can make it here. If you can make it here. <laughs> and, you know, look, there there are places where joining a labor union can cost you your life. You know, Columbia, uh, uh, a congressman I used to work for, George Miller, um, uh, led for years a lot of work to, to try to um, encourage the Columbia government to recognize that those who were seeking to join unions were doing so at their, at their peril. And uh, there are some very tragic stories relating to attempts to organize and uh, the consequences that led to deaths uh, in many cases. Uh, so, uh, again, showing that leadership and making this the new normal uh, will send a message that this is uh, what, what the world should be about, working together with employers. Mm -hmm. Um, and to be fair, I mean, I actually, I know that um, a number of the recent wildcat strikes at factories in China have just been, you know, like, pissed off people getting on their cell phones and just, like, sending out texts to all their, all their people on the floor. And, like, you yeah. know, they shut down production that way. So, I mean, there are various ways that this can spontaneously kind of inspire people, which I guess is sort of the beauty of the platform, um, if it's used for good and not for evil, right. I guess. <laughs> yeah. I'm, like, sitting here looking at my phone going, like, hmm. Yeah. So where do people <laughs> find the Kickstarter page? No, <laughs> um, yeah, but, but, right, if people want to get involved, if we have listeners who have technological skills that they want to, you know, connect, how can they connect with you? Well, if they, if they go to the website and, and look at our story on you know, using uh, t new technology to better tool for creating labor unions, uh, they can email. There's a, an email contact there. They should let us know that they're interested, and if they want to give us ideas, you know, we're the research part of this, uh, re researching uh, the legal and the uh, economic issues relating to organizing and the procedures relating to the board. Those who are expert in technology um, you know, should partner with people like us who know the 
ins and outs of the law and the process and the procedures and together uh, build a kind of platform that uh, will really be beneficial to lots of Americans. And that was Mark Zuckerman of the Century Foundation talking about his new report on digital labor organizing. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG! I wish I'd written that, where we bring you our picks for this week on things that we read, that we liked, that we wish we had written ourselves. So my pick for the week is called When Charters Go Union, and it is a piece that appeared um, at the American Prospect. It's going to be in an upcoming issue, but they put the preview online. So it is by Rachel Cohen. And it's talking about the tricky politics of unionizing charter schools. And we often think of teachers unions um, as always being unilaterally opposed to charter schools and never the twine shall meet. But there's actually a quite exciting labor movement that's brewing within charter schools right now where more and more actually uh, organizing and and teachers are coming together, um, developing their own union drives and uh, kind of building an indigenous labor movement within the charter school movement, which is actually a pretty pretty interesting development considering that um, if you go back in the history of charter schools, actually, um, one of the first advocates for uh, charter schools and for organizing the teachers at charter schools was uh, Albert Schenker. So, um, you know, uh, there's there's been a long history of teacher unions and charter schools, and it's only been recently that the corporate neoliberal education reformers have kind of hijacked the movement and, uh, and tried to uh, turn it into sort of something that's decidedly anti-union. So uh, I quote Rachel Cohen, she writes, Traditional unions are grappling with how they can both organize charter teachers and still work politically to curb charter expansion. And charter school backers and funders are trying to figure out how to hold an anti-union line while continuing to market charters as vehicles for social justice. So amid all of those contradictions, we find that there's actually, when you talk to teachers, there's nothing inherently anti-union about what the charter school teachers want. Um, basically want better working conditions, fair pay, they want fair schedules, and they want to have a say in how they run their schools and the types of education that they're providing to their students and to their communities. Um, The political challenge, it turns out, is to sort of reshape the charter movement so as to support charter teachers as public servants instead of as, you know, sort of these cogs in a neoliberal um, corporate style school privatization machine. So more unionization at charters would definitely be a good thing. And um, in recent years, unions have slowly recognize that to win over charters, they need to organize the workers while also criticizing the charter movement as a whole, as well as its leaders, as well as its ideological slant. Um, there have been some experiments with unions actually starting charter schools with some mixed results, and there are also um, there have also been some you know uh, real setbacks in, in terms of pushback against uh, unionization drives within charters. But um, well, uh, Greg Swanson, I think, put it best. He's an English teacher at Benjamin Franklin High School uh, Charter School in Louisiana, which is a seedbed of the charter school movement. Um, and he basically says, you know, they when we brought our ideas to the attention of the administration at his school. We were just told that they can deal with some things and not others. Without the pressure of the union, our voices are not heard in the same way. So whether they're at a charter school or at a regular public school, all teachers really want recognition and respect for the kind of work that they do. So if you want to read more about that, um, you can look at the piece and look at what some teacher unions are doing within charter schools instead of just against them. So if you are like me, you probably spent a good chunk of time in the last week following the news about the shootings of nine African-American people in Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Coming shortly on the heels of the shooting of Walter Scott by a North Charleston police officer, the massacre by an avowed white supremacist has shocked the nation and might even finally, finally lead to the removal of the Confederate flag from the South Carolina Capitol. I read a lot of good pieces responding to the attacks in that time, but one stuck out to me that I thought I should share with belabored listeners. Um, It was by Lee Sustar at the Socialist Worker website, and it's a piece called Charleston and the Crucible of Race and Class, and he connects the low wages and low union density to Charleston to the history of white supremacy in that state. Right-to-work laws, which we've discussed, of course, on this podcast before, have a very ugly racist history, and so has most union-busting in South Carolina. 
um, and across the South, really, and across the country, really. Sustar tells the story of a fight between state politicians and the International Longshoremen's Association, Local 1422, the same local to which Walter Scott's brother belongs. And reminds that ILA 1422 also played a leading role in the fight to get the Confederate flag off of the dome on the Capitol buildings, though it remains on the grounds. As an aside, in 2010, I profiled a black South Carolina elected official, Anton Gunn, who now works for the Obama administration, and we photographed him in front of the Capitol with that Confederate flag behind him, which I rather enjoyed as a uh, nice little screw you to the people who believe in that flag. Um, the history of controlling black labor in the South, Sestar details, goes back to the days of slavery, and it's important in these moments to remember the history of resistance that also goes back just as long, and has continued even when the eyes of the country are not on South Carolina. Governor Nikki Haley, of course, is known for her comments about wearing stiletto heels to kick the unions with. She might finally be calling for the removal of the flag, but she's unlikely to change positions so quickly on the rights of her constituents, black or white, to form unions. Haley, who I also profiled in 2010 for The Nation, is an Indian-American woman who skillfully played off the good old boy racism that she faced. Um, notably, she was called a raghead at some point against a more genteel conservatism that pretends racism is just a thing of the past while enforcing a deeply unequal economic regime. It is, of course, politics that is not just Southern, but very American, that has as much in common with Wisconsin's Scott Walker and Illinois' Bruce Rauner as famed South Carolina segregationist Strom Thurmond. I have family in South Carolina and friends in Charleston. I've got a certainly a love-hate relationship with the state and the South more broadly. But in this moment, I think it's important both to understand and learn more about the specific history of racism and exploitation in South Carolina, and also to understand that across the country, black people face both particular violence and particular labor exploitation. So that does it for episode 80 of Belabored. You should come join us on July 7th in Brooklyn at 61 Local for a live event with David Stein and Betsy Beasley of the Who Makes Sense podcast. And if you have any ideas for digital labor organizing or you want to uh, develop an app for that, you can get in touch with us at hashtag belabored. Or email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. We will have links, of course, to everything we've discussed on today's podcast at the Descent website. We want to hear from you if you have anti-union videos to leak, ideas for digital labor organizing, a congressman that voted for the TPP that you want to yell about, or anything else you would like to share, as always. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Until next week, join us online using hashtag belabored.